0: It was a bright spring day, and all nature seemed to rejoice. The hopes of the people were at an all-time high. Multitudes cried out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, while they placed their garments on the road for Jesus to pass over. As he neared Jerusalem for the final time, the cries of Hosanna seemed to swell louder and louder until the company came in view of the city, gleaming like a jewel in the sunset. Beautiful temple. Suddenly the whole procession stopped in a dead silence. Which was soon broken by the sound of our Lord weeping. Luke nineteen forty one. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. This is great controversy. Amid the universal rejoicing of the triumphal entry, while palm branches waved, while glad hosannas awoke the echoes of the hills, and thousands of voices declared him king, The world's Redeemer was overwhelmed with a sudden and mysterious sorrow. He, the Son of God, the Promised One of Israel, whose power had conquered death and called its captives from the grave, was in tears, not of ordinary grief, but of intense, irrepressible agony. His tears were not for himself, though he well knew whether his feet were tending. Before him lay Gethsemane, the scene of his approaching agony. The sheep gate also was in sight through which for centuries the victims for sacrifice had been led and which was to open for him when he should be brought forth as a lamb to the slaughter. Isaiah 53, 7. Not far distant was Calvary, the place of crucifixion. Upon the path which Christ was soon to tread must fall the horror of great darkness as he should make his soul an offering for sin. Yet it was not the contemplation of these scenes they cast the shadow upon him in his hour of gladness. No foreboding of his own superhuman anguish clouded that unselfish spirit. He wept for the doomed thousands of Jerusalem because of the blindness and impenitence of those whom he came to bless and to save. Jesus put others before himself. Even when the most trying episode of his entire existence was about to come upon him, He cried not for himself, but for the doomed thousands of Jerusalem. He not for his own crucifixion, but for the crucifixions of many who had died during that awful siege that was to come 40 years later. This care for those around him did not lessen. Even on the night he was betrayed, listen to his prayer. Part of it recorded in John's Gospel, the 17th chapter right after they left the scene of the Last Supper. John seventeen eleven. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be me one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you have gave me, I have kept. And listen, not one of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Just a few short hours later, as he entered the Garden of Gethsemane, the olive press, he asked his close followers to watch and pray. While he himself groaned under his own struggle, he asked them to pray, not for him, but for themselves, lest they enter into temptation, according to Luke 22, 40 then not wanting to discourage them by allowing them to see his terrible agony. It says that he went a little farther and fell on his face. and just fell and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26, 39. As he prayed that prayer, he saw all things hanging in the balance, the lives of everyone here, Everyone who was ever to live, has ever lived, will ever live. Their lives were at stake. Not only that, but the vindication of his father's character and his government were at stake before the entire universe. If he should fail here, all would be lost. Every healing he had done in life would be virtually undone. Every sin he had ever forgiven would be rolled back onto the transgressor. Every act of kindness and mercy he had shown would have been in vain. So great was the stress on his human body that the physician Luke wrote that he sweat great drops of blood. 22:44. 22, 44. Twice he forced himself off the cold ground to go check on his disciples, and they were asleep. The bold and self-sufficient Peter, who promised he would go to prison and death for his master, could not even keep awake one hour at his request. Jesus said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is as he tried to excuse their weakness. He went back and fell down to pray for the last time. Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. The following, in my opinion, is one of the most beautiful passages in the spirit of prophecy, its desire of ages, page 690. Three times he had uttered that prayer. Three times as humanity shrunk from the last crowning sacrifice. But now the history of the human race comes up before the world's redeemer. He sees that the transgressors of the law, if left to themselves, must perish. He sees the helplessness of man. He sees the power of sin. The woes and lamentations of a doomed world rise up before him. He beholds its impending fate, and his decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. He has left the courts of heaven where all is purity, happiness, and glory to save the one lost sheep, the one world that has fallen by transgression and he will not turn from his mission. Then he lifted himself off the ground for that last time. He roused his sleeping disciples, told them, let's go. As a mob of troops, officers, and chief priests led by Judas Iscariot himself neared the spot. Notice John's powerful description of what took place next. This is John 18, verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? There was no ignorance on Jesus' part. He knew exactly what he was doing, and what would become of this. He knew that he was walking into arrest. He knew what they were there for. He didn't run away. They didn't find him hiding somewhere. He went forward and confronted it. And he met his destiny. They answered him, verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Verse 7, Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I've told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. This is the way Jesus saved his disciples from arrest. He asked the mob twice who they were looking for. And they said, Jesus, And all right, Jesus said, since I'm the one you want, then you should just take me and let my disciples go free. So was fulfilled the saying which he spoke in that prayer. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Although that was written in the past tense, it wasn't past tense to Christ. It was a pledge that he would continue to take care of them. Notwithstanding that he was in the weakest physical condition of his life, you're gonna have to forgive me. He went forward. I have to say it anyway. He made himself into a wall between, between between the mob, his disciples. If you want them, you're gonna have to go through me, he said. You remember that. You pray that. Jesus, I need you to step forward between me and this trouble, this mob, this sin, this hell that's trying to take over me. You should step forward. Peter didn't want it. He almost ruined everything. He wasn't content to let Jesus guard him in his own way. He decided that he had to protect his Lord. How often we try to do the same thing and make things worse, and Jesus has to clean up after us. He drew his sword and swung and cut somebody's ear off. He was about to bring upon him and all the disciples a terrible retribution. When Jesus went forward again and healed that man's ear, and stopped the fighting. Peter could not comprehend why Jesus not only did not fight his enemies, but healed them. Peter did not heed the warning Jesus gave him that he would deny him. He had not watched and prayed as Jesus had asked him to. So they all forsook Jesus and fled as the Lord was taken off to judgment before the Sanhedrin. Peter made yet another mistake that night when he pretended not to be Jesus' follower and mingled with the crowd at the high priest's courtyard. In order to cover up his first deception, he had to deceive again. Until so he had denied his Lord three times, the very thing Jesus said he would do. Luke 22:61, 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. While he was suffering his own abuse from the hands of the fiends and wicked men in the high priest's residence, Jesus spared a moment to look at Peter. and Their eyes met. And Peter's heart was broken. Like a flood came back, the memories of the words Jesus had spoken to him earlier warning him of his denial, asking him to pray. Peter's own promise that he would be faithful until death and how he had led his Lord down. He went out and wept bitterly. He fell on the rock and was broken. He came back and changed man. Luke 22:63. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemy spoke, blasphemously spoke against him. Jesus was condemned by the court, the Jewish court for blasphemy, for claiming to be the son of God, which he was. After many false witnesses were called up and abuse after insult were leveled against him. The Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, was in Jerusalem. He had the final say as to who lived and died under Roman law there. So they sent Jesus to him. The Gospel of John says that Jesus had a private interview with the governor because his accusers did not want to enter the place because they might be defiled. Murderers. Given such a chance, most any of us would take the opportunity to rigorously defend ourselves and put ourselves in the most favorable light that we could. But that's not what Jesus did with the threat of a soon crucifixion looming over him. Instead our lord the prisoner tried to save his judge. John 18:33. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? This response was calculated to cause Pilate to acknowledge the conviction that was growing in his heart that this was not an ordinary man. Pilate understood what Jesus meant, that he wanted Pilate to acknowledge him as his lord and king, but Pilate rejected the offer. He would not be reckoned as a spiritual Jew in Christ's kingdom and be saved. Verse 35, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. You say rightly that I am a king. Verse 37, For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went on again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. While Pilate was trying to save Jesus, Jesus was trying to save Pilate, but Pilate wouldn't have it. One compromise after another broke down his resolve to release this man, whom he knew was innocent. This is from the SDA Bible commentary. It says, Pilate had repeatedly declared Christ's innocence and endeavored, if possible, to release Jesus, and if not to evade responsibility for pronouncing judgment. He had attempted to persuade the Jews to handle the case themselves within the limit of the law. He had sent Jesus to Herod, he had attempted to release Jesus as the pardoned Passover prisoner. He had scourged Jesus in the hope of arousing pity for him and thus of saving him for the death penalty. The last thing he did was to wash his hands. He declared that his hands were clean of the blood of the man whose condemnation he was about to sign. Mark 15, 15. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with the reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, Put his own clothes on him and let him out to crucify him. Prophets of old foretold the treatment Christ was to receive on this occasion. Micah, chapter 5, verse 1. If you read this, it says, They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Isaiah wrote in chapter 50, verse 6, hundreds of years before it took place, it says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. If you've ever heard Handel's Messiah, you'll hear those passages put beautifully to music. Typically, the subjects of crucifixion were forced to carry a piece of their cross and marched. They were forced to work, to get to their place of execution. Jesus was not physically able to carry his, so they made the foreigner Simon the Cyrenian carry it for him. Amidst the jeering, scoffing, and the spitting, and the shouting, Jesus was hurried along through the streets and outside the city to the hill of Golgotha. On the way there, however, something arrested his attention. It was not his own pain or the mocking of the abuse that he was receiving, that caught his attention. It was a sound he was always sensitive to. It still is. It's a sound that always appealed to his compassionate nature. It was the sound of crying. Some women in the multitude burst out wailing and crying for him and his fate. He heard it and responded to them. This is Luke 23, verse 28. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Don't even cry for me, he said. Think about yourselves. Think about the disaster that this whole nation is bringing upon itself. Soon the whole city was to be under the wrath of God for its sin and, and penitence. His mind went forward once again past his own suffering to the terrible calamity that was to befall that city that rejected and crucified him. Roman legions would surround Jerusalem and cut off all supply of food, forcing those inside to make terrible decisions in order to sustain their lives. Those who dared ventured outside the city walls to gather up whatever they could grab to eat would be caught, and when they resisted, crucified in the sight of the wall of the city, until there was a forest of crosses surrounding the place. The city would be eventually breached and destroyed. The temple burned. Many, many thousands would die. In the, in the destruction of that city, he saw a symbol of the final destruction of the world. when multitudes would run, and run in the holes in the rocks and beg for the mountains to crush them, to hide them from that face that they were now spitting on and hitting. Mark 15. And they brought him to the place called Gotha, which is translated, place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. It was a sedative. He wanted his mind clear. They crucified him there. Luke 23, 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. When people hurt Jesus, when people hurt you and I, when somebody walks up to you and physically hits you, you feel the physical pain, you feel whatever the emotional attack. When people did that to Jesus, he felt those things and he felt more. He saw the sin which was repulsive to his nature, the sin of violence, and he saw the retribution that would ultimately come upon the one striking. Because every sin that you have ever done, you will pay some price for. If it's not in the lake of fire, you have to pay for it in this life. You know that. Jesus empathized. The difference between sympathy and empathy is that sympathy is acknowledging somebody else's feelings. Empathy is feeling it. Putting yourself in their place. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And He prayed that for us too. Because the same is true of everybody here. They divided his garments and cast lots, fulfilling the prophecy of a Psalm 22. Amidst his physical suffering and shame, the chief priests, rulers, and people taunted and reviled him. Matthew 27, 39. And those who by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, if you are the Son of God. Now, who said that? If you are the Son of God, that's the voice of Satan when he spoke to Jesus in the wilderness. And there's, he's speaking through them now. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down, come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Ela, ele, That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The religious leaders unknowingly quoted Psalm 22, almost verbatim to him. This is what David wrote, Psalm 22, 7-8. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip and they shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And They said he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. Jesus quoted from that same psalm later. Psalm 22, verse 1. He described his own pain. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Luke twenty three thirty nine. Then one of the criminals who were hanging blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? Although both the thieves had at first reviled Christ, in the course of time, tender thoughts began to spring in the heart of one of them. And conviction began to grow that this was not an ordinary man. No doubt he had heard about Jesus and his wonderful works and his teachings, for his fame went abroad. However, the life of sin restrained him from following Christ until his crimes caught up with him and he was sentenced to death. He even acknowledged the justice of the terrible sentence he was receiving. Verse 41, And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The jeers and the insults, the mockings and beatings, the crucifixion, all meant to discourage any possibility of anyone identifying this man with the king of Israel, all had the opposite effect on the penitent thief. He saw how Jesus bore insult and abuse with godlike dignity, how he did not retaliate once even in word or act, how he prayed for the forgiveness of his murderers even as they were driving the nails into his hands and feet. He heard the reviling against Jesus and he read the sign above his head calling him the king of the Jews. There while on the cross, the Holy Spirit illuminated his thoughts and chain after chain, link of evidence was forged in his mind until precious faith sprung forth within him. him. That this man, naked, battered, hated, and dying as he was, was the world's redeemer and the promised Messiah. Verse 42, then he said to him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. While Jesus' own disciples were far off for fear, and while the visage of Christ was marred more than any man in his farm, more than the sons of men, this thief at the last hour of his life in front of everyone calls Jesus Lord. He seemed to believe that both he and Jesus would be resurrected one day, and Christ would enter into his kingdom. He believed that Jesus could forgive him, and that he would if only the thief asked him to. And this Jesus did. And although he was still crucified and condemned by human authority, still dying, the thief had eternal life, and a peace greater than those wicked men around the cross. Because the great Jesus the Messiah reached out to him while they were dying together, they could nail Jesus' hands and feet to the tree, but nobody could take away his freedom to forgive. Even one poor sinner who asked him for help, which was his honor to do. I want you to think about your own life, how much you may resemble this thief. What sin have you plunged yourself into? How have you ran from Jesus even deliberately? I've done that. How many years have you spent running away? from a guilty conscience and a darkness that you cannot escape. Even after your sin has caught up with you, maybe your friends and family might justly hate you for things that you've done. The possibility of you righting any wrongs that you have done in life seems forever far away and your life is soon to close. Know that Jesus the Messiah loves you, that he laid aside his glory of heaven to save just a helpless sinner like you and I. And that in order to reach out and save even one poor lost sinner, he climbed on a cross next to him to share the fate that was his. There might be only scraps of you, but Jesus will take your scraps. He'll take you when it doesn't seem like there's anything left of you to give. I must implore you, though, not to make this an excuse to pursue his curse in the future plan on living a life of sin and repenting later. Just think about that. Somebody wrongs you and they say, you know, I could reconcile myself to you, but I'm going to wait till I'm almost dead. And you'll forgive me, right? You're not guaranteed that you'll be able to repent. As Jesus neared the final moments of his life, his thoughts turned to solving a particular dilemma. John nineteen twenty five says that now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. The poor mother of Jesus, now think about this. What expectations, what hopes might she have had for her dear child to think of the honor of being called the mother of the mighty king of Israel? How comfortable that thought must have seemed to her And now within a period of 24 hours, everything was turned exactly backwards. And she saw her son dying the most horrible death that could be inflicted by the Roman government. Now instead, hers was the shame of being the mother of a hated criminal publicly executed for blasphemy and sedition. She had known Jesus the longest. In a sense, she was his first follower. She had always known he was a special child, His birth was a miracle, attended by supernatural occurrences. An angel himself had visited Mary with the news of his birth. She received inspired word from several sources that her boy was to be the deliverer of Israel. The wise men, their gifts, the star, the shepherds, all came back to her mind. The water turned to wine, the many miracles Jesus had performed had fortified her faith that Jesus was the true king of Israel. And there she was watching him die, along with thousands of pilgrims who from every region flocked to the city to keep the Passover. Yet in the back of her mind, she must have remembered the words of that devout Simeon and what he told her when he held the baby Jesus up in his arms at the dedication of the temple. He said, a sword is going to pierce her soul. Jesus' heart was touched with pity for his grieving mother. Before he died, he must see to her welfare. He must entrust her to someone, but to whom? John the disciple was standing nearby her, and he made his decision. John 19:26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, or Madam, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. In this way, Jesus provided for Mary the support and sympathy she needed at that time. He cared for his mother up till the very end. And I'm sure John was blessed by having a reminder of his teacher with him around him. Always. Psalm 69, 20 and 21. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. John 19:28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Jesus finished his ministry to others that he came to do and he did these things under the most adverse circumstances possible. He was physically suffering and humiliated. He was beaten, spat upon, and insulted. His good name was cast down before everyone. His close friends forsook him and fled. Peter denied him, and Judas betrayed him. He knew the ingratitude of men towards him for making his great sacrifice, and that few would choose to be benefited at all. He felt the intense burden and horror of the crimes of the world weighing upon him. The awful sense of the separation between him and his father because of it and his own great power, knowing that at any moment he could instantly save himself, vindicate his name, and lay his persecutors in the dust while they tremblingly confessed him as the true son of God. If only he could save both himself and us at the same time. It was for us that he bore that terrible burden he allowed his life to be crushed out upon it. It was for us that he consented to bear the pain. He could have stopped it all at any moment, but he put our needs before his. He saw us in our sin, helpless, despairing under the just wrath of God, suffering the due reward of our deeds. And he said, no, take me instead. He had kept his disciples safe from the mob and arrest. He healed the man's ear that Peter cut off. He touched Peter's heart by looking at him. He counseled the temple officer who needlessly struck him. He ministered to Pilate for his salvation. He warned the weeping women of the danger they and the whole nation were in. He pleaded with his father in heaven to forgive his murderers. He assured the penitent thief of salvation, and he entrusted his mother to the care of John. But now, after all was accomplished, and that he had helped everyone around him that he could, now, only now, finally, his thoughts turned to himself and his own physical need. He felt thirsty, and just this once politely asked for a favor and a small one at that. He asked for just a drink. He said, I thirst. There was a the maker of all worlds, stars and galaxies, thirsty. Asking mortal men for this one mercy. Just a little water. John nineteen twenty-nine. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and he filled a sponge with sour wine. Put on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished.